Hi everybody, welcome along to The Dispatches. My name is Brendan Malone and I thought we'd do something a little bit different today and I would take you behind our Left Foot Media paywall and allow you to hear, for the first time ever, free to air, an episode that has previously only been available to our $5 monthly patrons. Now, the reason I thought I'd do this is twofold. Number one is to give you a bit of a taste for the kind of content that we have behind our paywall and encourage you, hopefully, to consider becoming a $5 monthly patron. All it takes is $5 a month, and you get access to all of the patrons-only content. We're producing episodes every single week, most weeks of the year, two episodes a week. And this particular show is called Thoughts from the Road. And as the name suggests, it's the episodes that I um, produce for our patrons when I'm away on the road. I take some portable podcasting equipment with me, and it's not quite as full as the regular weekly episodes, but it's still a decent episode uh, exploring usually a particular topic, and it's available exclusively to our $5 monthly patrons. To become a $5 monthly patron, just go to patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia and sign up there. And the great news is that our patrons-only episodes are now also available on Spotify. That's right, if you're a patron, you can listen exclusively to our patrons-only episodes on your Spotify app now. I'll post a link for that as well in the show notes for today's free-to-air episode because um, even if you are not currently a patron, you can actually access and become a patron now directly through Spotify. So I'll post that link as well. I'm sure some of you will be interested in that. The other reason I thought it would be good to make this episode of Thoughts from the Road available to a wider audience is because the question that it explores is actually quite an interesting and I think important one. And as you'll hear, it came from a tweet that I saw online a few weeks ago where someone asked the question, why has conservatism failed to conserve anything? So without any further ado, let's have a listen to this episode. I really hope you enjoy it. Don't forget, if you want to get access to this and all of our other awesome patrons-only content, go to patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia or the link that I will post in today's show notes and become a $5 monthly patron. In the meantime, enjoy the episode. I've travelled this big world, lonesome Hi everybody, welcome along to another episode of Thoughts from the Road. Today we're going to be exploring the question, why has conservatism failed to conserve anything? Narrow is the road, the road to glory, perdition's gates are broad and wide, on the steps you take to ponder, from the path to not far wander for the narrow Hi everybody, welcome back to another episode of Thoughts from the Road. I am still out of the office, thus the Thoughts from the Road episode this week. Um, I'd love to hear your feedback about uh, what you think about this concept and uh, hopefully it's uh, tiding you over um, because it's enjoyable to be able to put them together. Um, what we're looking at today, today's topic of conversation is uh, the question, well why has conservatism failed to actually conserve things? And the reason I wanted to actually have this discussion was because um, it was a tweet that I saw last week on Twitter where a conservative had posted the question, I think he's a conservative, maybe certainly at least conservative friendly person, who had posted the tweet 
um, asking the question, in your own words, what's the best explanation for why conservatism failed to conserve anything? And so this is a person who's looking around society and saying, gosh, in the West there's been uh, all sorts of um, collapses in fundamental areas, and what, why is it that conservatism failed in this regard? Um, and it, was, it really struck me as a fascinating and very important question because um, I think there's some good answers to give for this, but also I think it's maybe missing a few things as well. Um, so one of the first things I would say before I even get into some reasons why I think we can say that you know key areas have not been conserved by conservatism, important aspects of uh, the moral life and the social life of society have, have been undermined. Uh, and even the economic life and other things as well by various conservative failures. Before we get into exploring why that has even happened, um, I would pose a counter question, and that would be this. Has conservatism actually failed totally, though? The, the question is framed as if somehow conservatism has failed to conserve anything at all. That, I mean, that's literally what it says. How come conservatism has failed to conserve anything? But I'm not sure that's actually correct. Uh, yes, you can see where in the political space and the laws associated with um, political uh, machinations and legislations and lawmaking and, and all the rest of it, there's, there's been some failures, right? There's no doubt about that in certain aspects of society. But in other areas, I think if you look beyond just politics and law and you take the much broader view of conservatism, I think um, it's uh, interesting to, to note that in actual fact, probably um, conservatism has quietly conserved some things, but we just don't maybe necessarily recognize that, and we don't connect them so directly or intimately with conservatism itself and the importance of that particular project, because we sort of fail to see that conservatism is about more than just a political cause, and I want to end by talking about that very important point. It's actually about um, preserving you know, tradition and custom as well. And I think there are some areas where there is still, and I think we can provide ample evidence for the fact that conservatism has done some conserving. But we'll get to that point at the end. Uh, before I get there, let, let me just unpack what I think are some reasons that I would give for why conservatism, really I'm thinking here as a political movement, has, um, has probably failed to conserve a lot of very important things, well not probably, but actually has failed to conserve a lot of important things and what has been the cause of that particular failure. So the first thing I'd say is that it's really essential to understand a little bit of history about modern conservatism and uh, one of the key points is that modern conservatism was very effectively infiltrated by liberals and libertarians and I don't know if infiltrated such a fair word, but maybe it would be fairer to say that it became populated by libertarians and liberals. And um, that, that um, forgive my squeaky chair if you can hear that in the background, by the way, this is one of the, one of the dramas of producing thoughts from the road episodes is you have to put up with uh, things that aren't normally in the uh, home office slash studio. Um, so uh, squeaky chairs being one of them. Um, conservatism was populated really post-World War II by a lot of liberals and libertarians. And the reason this happens is, well, it's probably twofold. One is a lot of people post-World War II they are really broken and scarred and horrified by the absolute atrocities of the Nazi regime, the Japanese regime, then of course the, the horrors of the Russian regime, the Soviet communist regime that starts to come to light as well. And so I think for a lot of people they see this industrial genocide and slaughter and warfare, mechanized warfare on a mass global scale, you know, twice in a row. 
and a lot of them have had to live through it. And and you can't blame them for sort of coming home from that and thinking we just want peace. We we don't we don't even want to pick another fight. Can't we just live in peace? And liberalism, not libertarianism, but liberalism seems to be like a negotiated truth. A truth, sorry, a negotiated truce rather, where we'll sort of go to our separate corners and there will be this sort of agree to disagree type mentality and this is the way we'll keep the peace. You know, you have your beliefs, you have your beliefs and we'll only focus on what's essential. We'll talk more about that particular point in just a minute. How do you decide what's essential and what's not? But um, but there's sort of this negotiated truce amongst um, particularly men, I would imagine, who had survived these atrocities and you know, why wouldn't you just want to come home and have peace? There's actually something very authentically conservative about that idea of wanting a peaceful, stable social order. That's actually a very, very good and healthy conservative instinct. And the problem, though, of course, was that liberalism wasn't actually a negotiated truth. And uh, truce, again, sorry, gosh, Freudian slip. Uh, it certainly wasn't true either, but it wasn't a negotiated truce. And sadly, you can't really have a respite from the battle. Uh, this is where we often get ourselves into trouble, is where we fail to recognize that we must always be at battle with something or other if we are actually going to have a full and flourishing society and we're going to have a full and flourishing life. You you have to engage. There is always a battle to be fought. And even if you've just finished an awful, unnecessary you know, global war with um, industrial genocide, that doesn't mean that other battles that are less horrific, but still probably just as important, maybe even more important, must not still you know be fought. They, they have to be fought. The, the fight has to continue. So the personal battle for virtue in our own life, for example, the personal battle to maintain a, a loving and caring household, there's a battle involved in these things. We have to struggle against our own uh, laziness, our own comfort, our own sinful desires. Um, the the fear of what other people will think, uh, you know, all those kinds of things. And so, you, unfortunately, those things just don't stop being a reality, and you have to keep engaging with that. And and you can't build a perfect world uh, utopia if you like. And um, you know, liberalism doesn't give you that truce at all. You've actually still got to engage with um, things. And and so, liberalism seemed like a negotiated truce, though. And there is also something else that's really important going on, and that is the rise of, of Soviet communism. And so Marxism has a, a sort of ascendancy on the global stage after World War II. And uh, I think it's fair to say there were some missteps by the Allies as well, which helped to sort of precipitate that. Um, but, but effectively, the end result is that there's now this big global existential crisis, and that poses a very serious threat to peace, stability, uh, and legitimate um, human flourishing, societal flourishing, peace, uh, freedom, etc. And so um, liberals and conservatives and libertarians, they have something in common there. They recognize that threat, they hold that threat in common, so they come together um, to sort of try and, I guess, hold the line against that as, as the Marxist threat really does try and um, assert itself even in the West and, and particularly through academics who are very friendly to Marxism. And there's this crazy notion that right up until the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of Soviet communism, where there's no longer any escaping the true reality of what's really going on, because like we can, it's all laid bare. We can see for ourselves what has been happening, the stories, the records are now exposed. We've, you know, we've got everything. We've got the paperwork. 
we've got the receipts, so to speak, which actually tell us what really happened. Then you can no longer be an academic who's trying to pretend that somehow, you know, Soviet communism was actually this much better version of what the West was offering. You realize, in actual fact, no, this totalitarianism, corrupt, inept regime um, is, is not a good thing at all. But believe it or not, up until that point, you have academics and others who are trying to argue the case. For communism, and so liberals and conservatives, they get together, libertarians as well, and they sort of try and hold the line against that. And thankfully, successfully, in the West, uh, they were able to do that. But here's the thing: what happens is the the tendency is that conservatism sort of goes a bit quiet, and it doesn't really, I guess, push its case much. Whereas liberalism and libertarianism, they're more than happy to trumpet and to evangelize and proselytize anyone they can to their particular movement and their particular ideas. But for whatever reason, conservatives, um, they just take a more, maybe a more conservative literally approach and just sort of um, not sit this one out, but they sort of assume that good ideas maybe will win out. Um, And uh, we'll talk more about that particular point in a minute. And so what happens is, uh, please forgive that noise, that's the uh, commercial construction in the building where I'm staying right now that you can hear someone operating a drill. Um, but uh, they they sort of, um, they take a back seat while the liberals and the libertarians are more than happy to really push and promote their ideas. And, and funnily enough, conservatism actually in some way starts to swallow up various liberal ideas. And today, we're at the point now where a lot of um, conservatives uh, are actually... Uh, it's not uncommon to find that they're actually more liberals than they are conservatives or even libertarians. And people mistake the two, and, and that's the reason for that, because um, people who started out conservatives, they, they, they think liberalism, or the, the sort of, you know, liberalism started to take more of a hold, and also people who came in later maybe thought liberal ideas were actually part of the conservative canon, if you like. And so, um, you know, that's why today people often make that mistake and why we often see uh, what I would call diet conservatism is, is a, quite a normal thing. People who don't really understand authentic conservatism and they think it is either just some sort of reactionary right-wing movement or it's about economic liberalism or um, it's about, you know, libertarianism. You know, it, it, it's, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a big confusion around that today. But basically the problem, of course, with all of this, the, going back to the post-World War II situation, is liberalism doesn't have a vision for goodness, truth, and beauty. It, it has a, a, a philosophy which says you decide for yourself. The autonomous self-choosing individual will choose for themselves and, and, and they will choose how they live and what they believe to be good, true, and beautiful. And so that has a huge impact. You know, you can't conserve things if you don't have an objective standard by which you can measure that which should be conserved, that which might need to be reformed, and that which comes along which should be rejected. If you're now living in a culture that says, well, just live and let live, then um, that actually gives a very powerful foothold to revolutionaries who want to come along and say, well, okay, here's my ideas. Why can't we shape society around them? Um, And then, of course, the other big factor here is the separation of the private and the public. And this is a really big thing that comes out of Enlightenment liberalism. And it really goes back to Francis Bacon. And Francis Bacon is the... the, the founding father, really, of empiricism. This idea that, you know, you can't claim anything to be objectively true and therefore every person can be held to that standard unless you can actually prove that thing to be empirically true. So you have to use empirical 
uh, measures, empirical testing measures and standards to prove it to be true. Now that works fine for the natural sciences. You know, you can put things under microscopes. You can you can test them in labs. You know, you can dissect them. You can actually use empirical methods, but you can't do that with virtue. You can't do that with moral precepts, with moral truths, because they don't exist in the material world. So you can't subject them to the principles of empiricism. You know what else you can't um, uh, subject to the principles of empiricism? Well, the principle of empiricism, because empiricism itself doesn't exist in the material world. It is a principle. And so you can't even verify that using its own standard. You know, if you can't verify it empirically, it can't be held by everyone. Well, what about empiricism? How can you hold everyone to empiricism then? Because it can't be empirically verified. But what happens is this notion, which seems sound initially to some people, this idea, well, only empirical things should be held by everyone to be true and anything else, it's, um, you know, it, it's not you know, up to everyone else, or you can't sort of enforce it upon everyone, is um, it throws a whole lot of stuff out that we absolutely need in society. So virtue, moral claims, moral truths, theological truths and claims, religious truths and claims, they all go out the window because they are not subject to empirical testing. And it also gives an absolutely unwarranted um, authority to the material sciences, they now become dominant when really they, they, they have not earned that right. It's just an ideology which actually allows them to suddenly take an ascendancy and a strong foothold that in actual fact isn't good because you end up with situations like you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki are two very clear examples of this where you have science without moral restraint now because science can be empirically tested. I can show you what an atom bomb does. I can show you how to build one. I can show you the effects of it. I can show you the test footage, etc., etc., etc. But none of that tells me the most important thing of all, whether or not and how I should use that technology. That's a moral question, and guess what? That's not empirically testable. So all of a sudden, practical technology and medical science gains this dominance and power that is dangerous and not at all justified. But what we also end up with is, this is the beginnings of the separation of public and private life. So what do you have in the public square? Well, anything that's universal is public and you know everyone can be bound by that regardless of their religious creeds or personal philosophies. But then anything outside of that belongs in the, the private square. So you get this public-private thing and then what that does is that relegates a lot of moral questions into the private space. Virtue is in the private space. And, and the public life is a whole different kettle of fish. And, and so what happens is this straightaway creates a problem because if you're trying to conserve goodness, truth, and beauty, you don't have an objective standard and you're relegating moral standards into the private sphere, well, it's up to you as an individual to decide what's right for you. Um, and you only keep certain universals and some moral universals, but sort of only a, a, a certain number of them in the, in the sort of private-public divide then, um, yeah, you've got a real problem now about how you can conserve things because what's the standard that you're using? Um, and often it's not, it's not actually you know, obvious universal truths that you, you need to go deeper than that to actually have that conservation of, of what is good, true, and beautiful. Um, second factor, of course, is the loss of faith in Western society. And there's just no denying the link between um, conservatism and uh, Christianity, and we'll talk more about that when I sum up today, but uh, the loss of faith was hugely devastating for the conservative project, the loss of faith in society, and this comes on the back of the pi private-public divide, 
um, you know, faith gets rele- relegated to the private sphere. And then also the whole notion of empiricism that's playing into this. Uh, and then uh, also the utopian the sort of ideals, political utopianism, technological scientific utopianism that comes on the back of all of this. And of course, uh, you know, liberalism in general. It's trying to keep the fruit that it got from Christianity, respect for human dignity, respect for the individual, sacredness of life, etc., and the natural rights that would rightly flow out of that, the obvious conclusions that can be drawn, but it, it doesn't want the tree. It doesn't want Christianity. And uh, that's a real problem. You can get away with that for a little bit, but eventually society forgets uh, where the actual fruit came from and why the fruit is actually that important in the first place. Um, and the end result of all of this is basically Christian leadership. It just it, go, it becomes weaker, and, and there's an increasing silence from Christian leadership, and even sometimes a capitulation that's been a constant problem, capitulation to the technologies and powers and ideologies of the age. And, and so um, it, it's th- th- what you need to conserve what is good, true, and beautiful is a voice in your society, an institution, which is holding up clearly and coherently that which is good, true, and beautiful. And when that voice becomes ineffectual or weak, then guess what? Where, where is that standard coming from? You just Everything then gets relegated to relativism and subjectivism. The individual will decide for themselves. And there's no strong moral compass, so just make your own moral compass. And you know, as long as you're not hurting anybody else, um, you'll be fine. And so it's hard to conserve in an environment like that. Number three, I think it's hard to bargain effectively when the other side is uh, offering increasing licentiousness. Like that's the thing about liberalism. It's just increasing liber- uh, personal, what you call personal liberty, but it's really licentiousness that's increasing. We'll give you the right and the social norm, if you like, to, to do increasingly liberal things. You can satisfy and gratify yourself however you like, and we'll give you increasingly, we'll make that more and more liberal. And so when you're offering increasing licentiousness, which is pleasure, which is hedonistic in nature, which feels good, which is increases your comfort, etc., etc., then it's hard to bargain effectively when you're on the other side of the ledger saying, like authentic conservatism does, well, unfortunately, hedonism is an absolute dead end for a society, a very dangerous place to go. You've actually got to be willing to um, suffer for goodness and truth because you have to, you just do. And um, it's important, you'll flourish, but uh, the road that you have to walk is not an easy one. And so the other side is saying, oh no, don't listen to them, we'll just give you the power. We'll give you more and more power and power is a very corrupting and appealing kind of thing. We'll give you more and more comfort. We'll give you more and more licentiousness and gratification or ways to gratify yourself. We'll normalize them. And and you can see how it's hard to actually bargain in that situation and, and present your case when you're saying uh, often, well, no, that you can't really do that. We have to think about other factors. We have to think about um, suffering and, and, and self-sacrifice. And you can get away with self-sacrifice and calls to self-sacrifice in a time of war, which brings me to point number four, um, because we haven't really had a major crisis that has forced us to evaluate our choices, but a war will do that. So at a time of major war or major famine or some other financial crisis, then you can actually talk about self-sacrifice because you've got no other option, right? You realize, well, we can't all be hedonists if there's no food on the table. We can't all be hedonists if there's no money in the bank. We can't all be hedonists if there is this absolutely um, horrific authoritarian regime, totalitarian regime that wants to destroy the world and put people in camps and all the rest of it. You know, uh, hedonism suddenly becomes a far less important concern and we must unite. And so a major crisis actually uh, uh, doesn't just unite people, but it forces us to evaluate our choices and what is actually important. And so you can get away with calls to self-sacrifice during a war like World War II, but once 
Once that threat sort of diminishes or becomes localized, which a lot of threats after that do, apart from the existential threat of, of um, you know, shared mu- uh, mutual sort of nuclear, uh, sorry, I was going to say assimilation, annihilation, I suppose we would be all assimilated in some way or other. Um, but uh, yeah, th- then um, the basically we, we don't, but even that is still sort of localized to incidents and to it's like a low hum fear that just sits in the background humming away. It's not like a war where you're constantly under threat, constantly under siege. And so um, effectively that means we've sort of been getting away with not conserving things because we haven't had the major crisis yet. And you, and that fools you into thinking, oh, well, maybe it doesn't matter. Um, we, what do we need to conserve? Well, look, we're all comfortable, we're licentious, we've got hedonism, there's no major crisis, so we're not really forced to think too deeply about these things. And so it's hard for conservatism to actually mount its case all it can do is be a prophet that warns in that situation. And then sadly, when the crisis hits, it has to be there to try and help people pick up the pieces. Um, number five, uh, I think there was the overly optimistic belief um, that people had, and it's a mistaken one, that society is basically like a pendulum and that culture is like a pendulum too. You know that a pendulum will only swing so far in one direction, but then it's always guaranteed to swing back. And I would argue that's not true. I, I, that, that idea, I think, is incorrect. That's really grounded subtly in a progressive view of history and the subtle infiltration of progressive thinking there that somehow society is constantly progressing towards the good. And so therefore you could have a pendulum movement that might swing wildly one direction, but it will always right itself because it's, you know, society's never going to sort of fall off a cliff. Uh, but, but that's not true. That is absolutely not true. You could have a pendulum swing that's so great that the whole thing falls in on itself. Um, and the, you know the whole grandfather clock effectively collapses. Um, I think a better metaphor, and I've been saying this for a while now in presentations that I've been giving publicly, but I think a better metaphor that should be used when we think about culture and society is that it's actually like a garden. Um, and with a garden, uh, it's just like a culture or with a society, if you don't plant the right plants in your garden, you won't get any good fruit. If you plant... Um, plants that are not suitable to the climate or that are you know toxic you're not going to get good fruit right so you have to actually plant uh, if you want flowers and beautiful things you have to plant um, beautiful flowering plants if you want um, good food to eat you have to plant the right kind of plants that will give you good food to eat if you want to ensure that that happens, you also have to cultivate and care for and nurture a garden. And if you don't, even if you've planted the right stuff at the beginning, but if you don't tend to it, guess what happens? The weeds take over and uh, you might get uh, you know, pockets of fruit, but what could be your flourishing is diminished, your harvest uh, the yield that you get is severely diminished by that. And I think that's a very good and a more appropriate metaphor because what that means is that, um, yeah, a society can collapse. It can be overwhelmed and subsumed by the weeds, basically. And and I think this overly optimistic belief in pendulum swings caused us to sort of sit back and say, well, maybe we don't need to do anything. A lot of conservatives thought, oh, no, no, common sense will prevail. People will come right again. Now, the one area where I think there's a bit of an exception here um, is that... Um, I think transgender ideology is a bit of an exception because it's such a stark break from reality. Normally when progressivism breaks from reality, it's a gradual break, bit by bit by bit. There's an incremental sort of erosion. But transgenderism is A, a really stark break from reality. It's very sudden. And B, it's also something that is inherent to everyone. Your maleness or your femaleness is inherent to every single person. You know it. Now, other things that liberalism, where they've been successful, it hasn't, it's, it's sort of they target pockets and they're normally fringe things. So, 
you know, they might say, well, let's talk about some sort of sexual liberalization or more libertarian approach to say prostitution. But, you know, most people aren't involved in prostitution. It doesn't really connect with them. And they just sort of think, okay, well, live and let live. Someone else, they're not hurting anybody. They're freely consenting. Why can't they make their own choices? It doesn't, it doesn't connect with us in the same way as like our biological sex does. It's inherent to who we are. My maleness I understand my maleness. And, and when someone turns up and says, your maleness doesn't ex- exist, it's not a real thing, we should teach kids that they can be men trapped in women's bodies. Everyone, everyone, that, that's an experience that's personal to everybody. And so there, there, that's why I think there is kind of a noticeable difference with that one. But basically, outside of that kind of a thing, and there's not many of those, we didn't really shore up our flanks because we sort of, we had this optimistic belief, well, you know, common sense will prevail. But you know what if common sense doesn't actually prevail? So you know you need to you need to tend to the garden. You you really do. And um and unfortunately um conservatism was sort of vulnerable in this regard. And um, initially it sort of seems like there's a lot of people saying an idea is crazy, but that doesn't mean that that will always be the case. Uh, it might very quickly shift where all of a sudden the majority are like, oh, okay, well live and let live, for example. Um, number six point is that. Um, there is a weakness within conservatism for protecting institutions. And um, this is actually a really important part of conservatism because we should want good, healthy, uh, virtuous, well-run and flourishing institutions. They do matter. Institutions do matter in society. They're part of the the patrimony of tradition that's handed on to us. And they, they really do matter. And they should be tended. They should be cared for. It's like that garden. You have to tend to and care for it. But here's the problem that conservatism had never had to grapple with previously, and that was this. What if those institutions have fallen prey to errant ideologies? And what if they're so thoroughly corrupted, you now struggle to tell the point at which the institution ends or begins and the point at which the ideology ends and begins. And so the ideology has so totally subsumed the institution that I guess it's like a virus that's so totally taken over a body that it's hard to treat it. You're sort of like, well, what do we do here? And this is where kind of, again, the garden metaphor comes in. And what do you do with a garden that's been overwhelmed? Just like what do you do with an institution that's been overwhelmed by weeds? You have to completely dig out the garden and restart. But what you don't do is you don't just tear the garden down and go away and think, well, I'll come back in a year's time and I'll find good fruit. What you do is you tear down the garden, you you uh uh, pull out that which is, if you can, you'll save good plants. So the, the, this is really a, this is why the, I love the garden metaphor. Uh, the more I think about it, the more I contemplate it, the more I think it's actually the right one. It's because what do you do? The conservatives uh, have a, and authentic conservatism wants reform uh, rather than revolution. So revolution is tearing everything out of the garden. Reform is where you go through the garden and you and you analyze and you uh, are very care, are careful and rational in your approach and you think about watch. Uh, what sorry can be saved and what should be saved, what should be conserved. So you rip out the weeds, but you carefully work around plants that should be kept and then nurtured. And uh, so it's not a revolution. You don't tear everything down. And then what you do, though, is um, if you have to remove everything, you remove everything, but then you replant. So you reseed the garden. So you, you protect, you recover the institution. You don't just tear it down. And, uh, and that's really important because, sadly, even today, some conservatives have sort of fallen prey, I think, to the revolutionary thinking where it's like, we'll just tear it down. I know I was very vulnerable to that thinking for a while myself. And so I think the big issue is, well, how do we find strategies and what do we do to actually recover um, institutions that are authentically good, authentically well-managed, authentically well-run? That's quite a key. But what this means is, 
conservative uh, thinking and conservative, particularly in the political space, there's a bit of a weakness there for um, being willing to actually replant the garden because the the tendency is conservatism would favour keeping everything intact and looking for ways to reform. But that doesn't mean that reform uh, doesn't necessarily involve some pretty hard and intense reform. You know, it's, it's not revolution, but the reform might actually be quite thoroughgoing you know, what needs to be done. And and it might need to require replanting, but that's not something that conservatism has had to really consider. That tended to be the the sort of the probably more the way of thinking with revolutionary movements, which conservatism had absolutely resisted. And so there's a bit of a weakness there. And I think that's had a bearing on conserving goodness, truth and beauty. If your institutions are not doing that, you can't just hope that somehow you'll find a workaround, a back door that will allow you to conserve things while the institutions are also thoroughly corrupt. So it's it's a big and challenging issue, that one. Uh, I think number seven is the loss of trust in our political leaders. That's a big factor in various scandals and exposés and some fear, some unfair, some uh, true history, some truism where you know urban legends sort of take hold and and people start to believe that no leader is reliable or that you know everything is in, is, is totally fallible and fallen uh, and corrupted when in actual fact um, a, a sort of more balanced reading of history I think gives us a more uh, nuanced perspective than that but there has been no doubting a major loss of trust in political leaders they have been exposed and a big part of it is what do they actually stand for where's their integrity and that's been a growing problem uh, Watergate was definitely Definitely a big factor in, in the modern mind and, and really sort of a big moment for a lot of people. And it rippled out around the world. You know, if you can't trust the U.S. president post-World War II, when the U.S. was the shining beacon, right, of freedom and re-establishing the, this new world order and making things better, and then all of a sudden the leader of the free world, the most powerful man in the world, has been exposed as absolutely being corrupt and a criminal. And it's sort of like, whoa. You know, so that has, particularly because America's so invested everywhere around the world, that has big ramifications. And then, you know, leader after leader starts falling prey to their own scandals and, and it also becomes more public. It's not to say that in the past leaders didn't have scandals. It's just you didn't have a mainstream media and, and mass media communication to broadcast your scandals and now social media live and very quickly to a global audience. And so it, it really you know, powerfully sort of erodes trust in our political leaders. And, and to be fair, maybe we needed to have that challenged a bit because maybe we had a, a far too idealized sort of utopian vision of leadership. Oh, they're like perfect, saintly, God-ordained individuals. And we failed to recognize the humanity and have nuance about all of that. That's why I think some, even today, some Christians really struggled with Trump. Um, I look at Trump and I was actually talking to a group this morning. Uh, giving a presentation on this, and I talked about the fact that, yeah, he was this sort of um, verbose, rude man um, who who loved McDonald's and, and steakhouses and not fine food, um, but he was also this guy who did more for goodness and truth when it comes to protecting unborn lives than any other conservative president had actually done before him. And I'm like, well, I'm not particularly picky when it comes to leaders who improve human flourishing and um, moral outcomes in society. Uh, they might be um, obtuse, verbose, rude, uh, arrogant, boastful people, but um, I, I'm also um, willing to accept that God can draw straight still with crooked lines. Um, and so uh, I'm not going to deify the guy. I'm not going to turn him into a saint because he's not that. But I'm a bit more nuanced and a bit more realistic, where sadly some people are not. They still have this, I think a lot of people have this really crazy belief that leaders are, like, you know, Jacinda Ardern, for example, just because she talked about kindness a lot and had this particular brand around built around that, that somehow that meant that she was, 
you know, perfect and know that it can't be that she would be imperfect and that she would be making a moral decision. It's just, you know, people are fooled by the PR too often, I think. And so maybe it was a good thing that we had that challenge. But the problem is it hasn't really helped. We've just got this mass cynicism and it's hard to have um, the conserving, uh, the, yeah, goodness, truth and beauty being conserved um, when particularly even conservative leaders were some of them big ones, not all of them, but big ones were exposed. And then people start to say, well, you can't trust anyone. So the people saying we should conserve things are often also doing the bad things. So why should we trust them? They're just a bunch of hypocrites. Integrity really does matter. Um, there's also been, no doubt, um, number eight, a very powerful um, slew uh, it's an avalanche, an ongoing and constant avalanche now of very powerful propaganda. Propaganda, sorry, propaganda keeps happening over and over again. So I suppose it is propaganda and agenda and agenda. Um, but propaganda against conservatism and and particularly in the media and on social media now. And uh, and what's happened is this has been quantified by a couple of things. Number one is that people are reasoning less, they're thinking less deeply. They're very superficial more often than not now, um, and there's a lot of depth that is missing, and all of us are, are corrupted by that. We've, that's why we've got to be very careful about it, have the humility to recognize that we can all be corrupted by that lack of depth. Um, but also there's the speed at which that happens now, and then there's these urban lists, uh, urban, urban, what I say, urban lists. <laughs> Man, I'm having a real blinder today, aren't I? <laughs> oh, that's so funny, urban lists. What's an urban lith? I suppose it's a myth that has been elevated so it's a lift a lift so yeah <laughs> i made up a new word mummy that's not how that works unless you're a progressive son um but no seriously um these urban myths started to spring up and people believe things that aren't true about history and other moments in in time and you know key political events etc and um and so you know it's hard in that sort of environment to tell the truth and to have the truth cut through because there's this big, powerful, propagandistic movement against it, against conservatism, against goodness and truth. And also people start buying into widespread mythologies, and those mythologies often create an idea that somehow the conservatives are bad, evil, oppressive, hateful people. And uh, you can see how that all starts to work against you and works against conserving anything, really. Which brings me to point number nine, that ultimately I think liberalism is a, uh, a type of parasite uh, that results in ever-diminishing returns. I've already talked about how liberalism, Enlightenment liberalism, basically took the fruit from the tree of Christianity. It added in some of its own bad ideas as well, but it wanted to keep the fruit without the tree. This is something Friedrich Nietzsche critiqued the Enlightenment thinkers for. He said, you guys are talking like God still exists, but he doesn't. We've killed God, remember? That means we're free to self-create and find our own meaning. Uh, he was also obviously very wrong, but he was right to critique them. But liberalism is a type of parasite in that way. It, it's, it you know, originally steals from Christianity. Um, the problem is that the tree is not being tended, the garden's not being tended anymore. And so, what do you end up with? You end up with ever diminishing returns. It's like a garden you don't care for. You're not going to get good crop yields if you don't fertilize and um, prune and all those other things you need to do. Um, it just doesn't work that way. And so, liberalism gives you constantly. Um, diminishing returns and and what what how this really manifests is there's this constant state of erosion or revolution going on in your society. Once you start eroding, the erosion doesn't suddenly stop. You know, you, you have one revolution and guess what happens? You've got revolutionaries already waiting in the wings before that first revolution has completed its cycle to revolt against the revolution. And that's just the, the constant cycle that we've been pulled into now, a constant state of erosion. And it's really hard to defend a line in the sand when 
the line in the sand is constantly, well, the sand is constantly being swept away. And, and so it's hard for conservatism. It's, it's also a bit of the frog in a pot type syndrome where the, the water is getting hotter, but you don't realize it. And so if you're a conservative, you can very easily think, well, we must hold this particular line. But in actual fact, that particular line that you're trying to hold is already well beyond the line you should actually be holding because you're in a, in a pot. You don't realize the temperature's changed. And, and so it's, it's, it's very hard for conservatism in that constant state of erosion, that sort of parasitic nature of liberalism. Um, and, and of course, we're, we're sort of drowning in our feelings-based, uh, you know, what I mean by that is it's not even what do you think about this moral question, it's what do you feel about this moral question more often than not now. And it's sort of a feelings-based, soundbite, celebrity culture. And in that sort of feelings-based, soundbite, celebrity culture, it's very hard to defend truth because, you know, you have to do some intellectual heavy lifting and you have to do some self self um, sacrifice to actually guard and safeguard and, and build and protect and nurture these kinds of things. But in a culture that's feelings-based, that's about sound bites, that's about celebrity culture, hedonism and all the rest of it, you know, heavy lifting and self-sacrifice, that, they're not top on the agenda of priorities. You need a crisis to bring you back to that. Uh, but they're not top on the list, right? Which brings me to number 10, we all value, and it's, I include myself in this, even conservatives who are striving to be uh, good, true and beautiful in the way they live out their life. We are all vulnerable to this fact that we that the society, by and large, and all of us, we value our own comfort. And we easily lose sight of the sort of perpetual vigilance and struggle that is necessary. As the Christian scriptures say, you know, you've got to take up your cross daily. And a cross is not a comfortable thing. There's no such thing as a posturepedic cross. Uh, the Christian scriptures also tell us that the devil... You know, the very prince of evil, the prince of lies, is like a roaring lion. And he's constantly roaming about looking for people to devour. And, and I would say things as well. That, you know, the, the institutions, the goodness, the truth, and the beauty. Uh, if he can destroy it, if he can maim it, if he can uh, vandalize it, he'll do it. And, and his roaming and his hunger is ceaseless. And, and what happens, though, when you're in a culture which values comfort and used to being comfortable, we easily lose sight of that fact, that you actually need to be perpetually vigilant because rust never sleeps, and so does the devil. He never sleeps. I was talking to a group this morning about that. Um, you know, this, we often think, well, we've won a victory, and now we've held the line. No, 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 that's not it. You actually have to cultivate as well. You can't just say, oh, look, we saved that particular apple tree from a tornado. You've got to say, well, what about all the other plants and trees that were pulled out along the way? What are we going to do about them? So the proactive and perpetual vigilance and, and struggle to actually live and propagate and cultivate and grow virtue in a society, we, we've, we've abandoned that largely. And, and it's easy to be comfortable at the moment. You can get away with it. We've got enough money still sitting in the system and enough gadgets and everything else, um, and we're still relatively in control of those things that we... We're comfortable, but once the, the script gets flipped a little bit, we have crisis, we run out of things, uh, the costs start to get really high, the economic toll settles in, and uh, the devices start controlling us. All of a sudden, you know, then maybe we're forced to evaluate our decisions. But at the moment, we're sort of getting away with it because of comfort. Which brings me to number 11. Um, I think also there's an inability to maybe realize, particularly amongst conservatives, what was actually happening. Um, I think what a lot of conservatives tended to think, and probably in some cases still do, is they think when a, when a new um, attack is made on, on tradition, something that's good, true, and beautiful, and people try and carve off another piece of it, uh, normally 
Um, what happens is they come for a slice at a time and conservatives are lulled into thinking, oh, it's just one slice of the loaf. That's all they want. When in actual fact, the intention was never to stop at one slice. This was just an incremental strategy to get the whole loaf. You just get it slice by slice. And I think conservatives fail to recognize that. And then you're like a frog boiling in a pot and you get very desensitized to the fact that uh, a third of the loaf is missing. And so you think that's the normal situation. You forget that you're supposed to have a whole loaf and so you think, oh, it's not a big deal if we lose another third of the loaf or maybe another quarter or just another slice. And, and it doesn't seem that big. But in actual fact, when you realize that slice plus the missing third, that, that you know, oh, hello, half the loaf is now gone. But, you know, um, there's sort of a failure, I think, to recognize what, what was actually happening. And I think we're probably a little bit more savvy about that now, but still not really clear enough about how to respond and why we should mount good effective arguments that really speak deeply to these issues and to actually conserving things. We haven't really conserved enough or put our mind to conserving things. Which brings me to my final point, just to wrap it all up, and that is this, that, and this is really important to understand, is that conservatism is actually not primarily a political project. And so the framing of that tweet, that first question is, why has conservatism failed to conserve anything? It implies that nothing's being conserved. Now, I think possibly at a political level, you could maybe make that argument. But even there, I think you'd struggle to make that argument that nothing's being conserved. But there's been a lot of carnage done at that level. But if you realize that conservatism is not actually primarily a political movement, the, the authentic conservatism of the original founders of conservatism, they believe that their most important project was actually the promotion and the increase of Christian virtue in society. So it's not actually a political project. And when you think about that, you realize, well, in actual fact, conservative uh, movements and conservatism, the original authentic conservatism, has actually been successful. So one of the very clear ways it was successful was in the United Kingdom, uh, in England in particular, when revolution was being fermented out of France. And so the French Revolution kicks off and people are calling for the same thing in England. But it's thanks to the likes of Edmund Burke... Cardinal John Henry Newman, Benjamin Disraeli, and others, the original sort of conservatives, who actually do conserve and resist. Uh, not only do they prevent revolution from taking hold in England, but they also um, protect a vision of human rights that is what you might call negative in basis rather than positive. So the French revolutionary version is my right to claim for myself, the autonomous self-choosing individual, what I want. Whereas the um, liberal experience in the UK was a bit different. And so the liberal experience in the UK was, uh, no, uh, in actual fact, it's about your right as an individual not to have certain rights eroded or taken off you. So you're not in the driving seat in that model. You know, you still have principles of goodness and truth that are actually in the driving seat. They just can't uh, cross certain boundaries. Whereas the French model is the other way around. The autonomous self-choosing individual is in the driving seat and, and, and it's just, you know, this sort of anarchistic, that's Star Wars, anarchistic Skywalker, um, this uh, uh, anarchy and, and, um, and sort of revolutionary destruction that happens. And so conservatism actually did protect against that. And so it was successful at conserving in that regard. But again, if you look at the conservative project in its fullness, you realize that it's not primarily a political project. It's about the promotion of Christian virtue, and that includes in your political sphere. How do you actually live out what you know St. Augustine termed the city of God? What does it look like to have political and social structures 
uh, you know, beyond the life of the church that actually reflect that Christian vision of reality. And so the promotion of Christian virtue is essential. And in the age of Christendom, I would argue that that actually there was a very successful movement that that did that, that cultivated that. And and I think the reason I would say that is because when I look at society, I'll give you one really clear example. I was talking to a group about this just recently. The fact that everyone, almost everyone, apart from some wayward academics and some very um, weird uh, people who lack basic moral uh, basic moral compass, everyone in our society would say that no, infanticide is a grave evil and it's not okay to kill infants. That was a moral instinct that came directly from Christianity and, and this complete revolution that happened in society on the back of Christendom. That instinct is still with us. It still has been conserved. Now, yes, it is being eroded and yes, it is being attacked, but that instinct is still there. It's still a widespread instinct. And so um, there are still things here that have been, and that's an example of the successful movement throughout the, um, particularly the medieval period, the age of Christendom, where this uh, instinct was um, built into, baked into a society, and it has still been conserved, it's still with us. But here's the thing, I, I make a distinction between what I call intentional virtue in a society and latent virtue. And so intentional virtue in a society is where people are intentionally striving to be virtuous, to live virtuous lives. Latent virtue is where there's like a latent virtue that's been built up over successive centuries or decades or generations. There's a certain customs and tradition basically that are sort of baked in. And you're not really thinking too much about them, but they are still present in your society. And so there is latent virtue that has actually been conserved in our society. And the reason I say that is because even though intentional virtue, we're very weak in that at the moment. We are. There's no doubt about that. How often is virtue being talked about? How often is it being encouraged? How often are families even schooling their kids in that? Even sadly Christian families, there is a problem there with intentional virtue. We're weak in that regard. But I think we still have a fairly robust, it's not perfect, and it's not um, you know, infallible by any stretch of the imagination. It could be pulled down, uh, absolutely, with, with you know, a certain intense revolution. And it certainly is being eroded at the edges, but there is a strong latent, or what you might call a bit more of a robust, there's still a, there's still a framework of latent virtue, shall we say that. I'm trying to be as um, astute and as honest and as truthful as I can about this, because it's, it's not you know, it's not totally robust and it's not beyond um, being pulled down and, and, and overthrown. But the reason I know that that latent virtue is present is the fact that we still have a functioning society. We aren't in civil war yet. We aren't in, you know, random barbaric bloodshed on the streets. We still do have a rule of law. Yes, at times it's being eroded, but the rule of law is still considered important by people. We still have a moral compass at a social level where we are horrified by certain acts. You know, one of the things about the sexual abuse crisis in the church and the various Christian churches have fallen prey to that, even the sexual scandals that aren't abuse but are other types of sexual scandals, there's actually something really good and healthy about the fact that wider uh, non-Christian society is saying, hey, this is absolutely reprehensible. Because, okay, some people are willing to try and use that as a cudgel against the church and are unfair in their assessment of those situations, but also the fact that they've got an instinct, a lot of people, that this shouldn't be happening, and of all places it shouldn't be happening in the church, that means that people still have a latent sense of virtue and a, a latent sense of truth, that Christianity is supposed to be a place of integrity and godliness and righteousness. If they'd lost that, 
And and we're sort of on the cusp of that, to be fair, in some circles. But if, if we lose that, that's the moment that we're in real trouble because that's the moment people say, oh, so what? Yeah, the church is involved in another sex scandal. Oh, who cares? That's just uh, that's just uh, business as usual for them. Now, we haven't got to that stage yet. So, you know, that, that's a good thing. There's an instinct still there. There's a latent virtue. The fact that we haven't collapsed as a society, that the fact that we don't have open warfare and barbarism on our street. Yeah, we do have barbaric crimes, but it just hasn't descended into absolute chaos and, chaos, sorry, and anarchy. So there are certain things that are still present. I guess the, the person who wrote that tweet might argue that they haven't been deliberately conserved, though. So what has been done to conserve those things? And that might be a fair question. Uh, you know, is that just because the latent virtue is so baked in, it's so deep, and we perhaps have now really come to recognize that we don't want to lose that, and so we, we sort of hold on to it? Um, or, you know, is it because people have actively conserved it um, and dedicated themselves to that? And, uh, you know, I think that would be a fair question. But the point is, I don't think uh, conservatism has failed to conserve you know anything like it hasn't stopped conserving some things it's just some key areas definitely has been an erosion and and there is a crisis and a major problem in our society and one of the fundamental failures i think is the failure to recognize that conservatism is not primarily a political project it was a religious one it was a project to promote and to grow christian virtue in culture and that is where we've definitely failed to conserve and that's a problem a society that does not have a sacred transcendent idea a truth uh, about reality in other words there is a god and we must be accountable to that god and uh the of i mean for me it's just a no-brainer there is only one god <laughs> the great i am and that's it um and uh if you lose sight of that sacred idea then i'm sorry how do you have a society how do you meaningfully how do you keep a society together if everyone is acting as radical, autonomous, self-choosing individuals and we don't believe that we have to actually be accountable to anything higher than ourselves, how do you keep a society together? I mean, yeah, it, 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 you see this play out consistently time and time again with smaller societies, groups and things which sort of try and adopt this sort of total, pure egalitarianism and um, subjectivism. They end up just coming to an end because there are certain truths, there are certain natural law realities that are inescapable. And, uh, and I think that's a big factor, and that's where we have failed, and I think that's where we need to really work hard, and that work needs to begin in our own personal lives. So the, the conservation of goodness, truth, and beauty has to begin with us. What's happening in my own heart and mind, and then flowing out from that, the next thing is what am I practically doing to conserve goodness, truth, and beauty? Uh, am I praying enough? Am I studying my scriptures enough? If I'm honest with you folks, my scripture study has dropped off the boil a little bit in the last couple of weeks, and I need to get back into the routine I had before that, prior to that. Um, I, I really do. That's a failure to conserve goodness, truth, and beauty. Am I praying? Am I serving my husband or my wife, my family, my household, my church, my my co-workers? Uh, am I thinking about and caring for the poor? You know, all those kinds of things. What am I doing to conserve goodness, truth, and beauty? And, and that's the essential project and, and that we need. And I think a, a big part of that is actually knowing and understanding our Christian tradition. And that means studying our scriptures and studying the church fathers and studying our theological traditions and, okay, different denominations. I know different people who listen to me come from different denominational backgrounds. You will have different traditions, but do you know them? Do you know the traditions of other denominations? That helps as well because I think we need to be together in the marketplace. And I think if we can be together, even if we don't agree on things, but we can be together with a a civil disagreement so we're not hostile towards each other 
then I think that's a more full and flourishing thing too. But all of that is about conserving goodness, truth and beauty. And of course, we must never live the lie. And that's why you hear me constantly talking about that and uh, constantly ending my podcasts and signing off the way that I do because I, I believe it's so essential and you've just got to have it uh, baked in. And so you've got to keep repeating the truth and the, the mantra so that it just sort of, you know, it becomes the normative way of thinking about the world and then acting in the world as well. So with that in mind, thank you so much again for your patronage. Thank you for tuning in. And don't forget, live by goodness, truth and beauty, not by lies. And I will see you next time on The Dispatches. Yo, get the speaker box loud. Hitting that stuff till you hearing that sound.